Hello. Very good to see you. Does anybody know when Pentecost Sunday is? It's uh, June 5th, yeah? June 5th. It's two Sundays from now. And we've been thinking about Pentecost Sunday as we think about the coming of the Holy Spirit and preparing our hearts for the Holy Spirit. And uh, what I'd like to do is to continue sharing about that because I do feel that the Lord is doing something uh, very special, some very, very particular in our midst. And, uh, and I believe that uh, He is, I don't know, he is, He's doing a work in our church in such a way that um, if we hear His voice, we will not only hear information, but it will change us. So um, I want to invite you to uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 1, and we will read the first eight verses of Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 is um, around 40 days after the resurrection. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven, after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. After he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. You'd never guess that this was a power summit. But it says here that Jesus gave orders to the apostles, um, giving orders and speaking, uh, and actually you started speaking about the kingdom of God, gave, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Verse 3, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the rule of God in, in people's lives, the rule of God in this earth, but especially down to the very smallest, minutest level in which of God's ruling. He rules not only the cosmos, but he rules Every the, the, the very smallest minute of uh, exact existing particles, yeah, concerning the kingdom of God. So you can imagine this motley crew of people who just whose last experience has been just utter devastation, not that long ago, forty days ago, and now he's speaking to this small group of people concerning orders. Wow! So here's the God of the universe speaking to this undistinguished group of people concerning the orders of the Holy Spirit. Big things are happening. You never guess it. But important things are being spoken by Jesus to the apostles. I wonder what he spoke to them if it's really important things. So the title of my sermon is The Most Important Thing. The Most Important Thing. But you can ima- just, just imagine that. Jesus speaking to the, the, the disciples there concerning the orders by the Holy Spirit. Wow. Wow. You think they are important things. These are orders given to a group of people who are not necessarily distinguished, not distinguished at all. You'd, think, you'd not think that they are the movers and shakers of this earth. Not even in Israel. Not even in Jerusalem. In fact, not even in um, Galilee. They are not the movers and shakers. But he's speaking to what he deems to be the movers and shakers who would not affect just their time, but ours as well. Okay? So, what he's speaking about, in contradistinction to everything else, is so important that it is, um, and we wouldn't be exaggerating when we say it, of cosmic significance, eternal significance, historical historic significance. So what he's speaking about then is more important than many of the things that we consider important. And I'd like to talk about this most important thing. 
Verse 4, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? Yeah? To be distinguished from the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom of Israel. So Peter, is, his mind is on like kind of mega things, right? Big things. This fisherman from Galilee is thinking about prophetic, eschatological things. Things that have to do with Israel, right? Things to do with the politics of this country. And he's, uh, he's saying, is this the time? Now Jesus is talking about the most important things, right? He's talking about the most important thing. Things have to do with orders for this world. And he says to him, it is not for you to know. Times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But here's the most important thing. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. That's the most important thing. In contradistinction to Peter's idea that the restoration of the kingdom of Israel should happen around now. It's quite an amazing thing. What was pivotal in terms of the history of the world had to do with what was about to take place for the disciples when, on the day of Pentecost would fully come. Now that is different from what we would normally think. Yeah? We normally, from what we would normally think. So I'd like to look at this and to think in terms of that perspective. Okay? Let's uh, pray. Lord, we welcome your presence that we will not just know in our heads what the most important thing is, but we pray that the most important thing will come upon us and change us so that we will be witnesses in Judea, Sumeria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. We do not want to know things, but we want to have this most important thing come upon us. So we welcome you, Lord. We welcome you as we look forward to Pentecost and we pray that you will cause us also to have a, a kind of Pentecost that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're having a power breakfast with Jesus and his disciples. You never guess that they are, they are these movers and shakers of this earth. And he's talking about something that doesn't really depend upon their skill sets either. Right? It doesn't depend upon that. The, the most important thing was not their skill sets. They were not the Justice League of America. They were not the Avengers. They were not the power, power team. They were just a group of people who had just been devastated by the crucifixion and have just been awakened to the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead. But he was telling them, this is the most important thing for you. Peter was thinking about the kingdom of Israel because he understood enough to know that if, when, if God restores the kingdom of God, the Messiah uh, restores the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Israel, it would affect his fishing. It would affect his family. It would affect everything. It would affect the politics of the land. And he would affect, it would affect their lives. But what Jesus was saying is this. That's not even as important as the most important thing. That's crazy. He's saying this most important thing is more important, more powerful, more effectual, more operative than even the restoring of the kingdom of Israel. In fact, he's saying to, to Peter, your penchant for knowledge about these things is not for you to have. Peter's a bit anxious, right? He's, he's kind of encouraged and anxious 
And at the same time, he's anticipating something great happening. And because Jesus is the first one who's ever risen from the dead, to that extent, even, even more dramatic than Lazarus, he's thinking, we have a hope, we have a chance. We have a chance there for the kingdom of Israel to happen. We have, we have a chance for all the things that the prophets and sages have been talking about for generations and generations and hundreds of years, actually thousands of years, to actually come to pass. And he says, is it now? Is it now? Now? Now, now, now? Really? Now? He says, it's not for you to know. Talk about a wet blanket, right? So you rose from the dead, you went through all these things, and it's still not for me? It has to be that Jesus has an alternative to restoring the kingdom of Israel, right? Or knowing about it, at least that is way more important, way more powerful, way more life-changing than that. And that is, it is not for you to know times or epochs about the Father has effects by His own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and even to the remote, remotest parts of the earth. That's a... That's, that's, that's amazing. The first thing Jesus was saying is this. Stay in Jerusalem. Stay in Jerusalem. And if you stay in Jerusalem, it'll take you to Ephesus. It'll take you to India. It'll take you to the uttermost parts of the earth. But you can't do India, you can't do Ephesus until you do Jerusalem. But Jerusalem was the most dangerous place for them. The, the, Jerusalem was the place where they had experienced trauma. And he was, Jesus was saying, stay in Jerusalem. Stay in Jerusalem. If you don't stay in Jerusalem, you will not experience what I have for you, which is the Holy Spirit, which is more important than Ephesus and India for, for the moment. Yeah? Stay in Jerusalem. And when you stay in Jerusalem, what you are going to experience is the fear that has been hounding you, the dangers that have been hounding you, but I, I, there's a place for you. I'm going to keep you safe. But more importantly, in the face of these fearful things, in the face of your weaknesses, in the, fa in the face of your trembling knees, I will cause the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon you in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, you will experience my power that is so great that it will make you bold in the face of your dangers that you've just seen. And in fact, the dangers will be overcome by such a power so great that it will change you from the inside and make you a different person by the time you get to Ephesus. Unless that happens, you cannot even get to Capernaum. So I think there's something about this waiting on God uh, before Pentecost that actually goes against our own, our own uh, tendency, our habit of mind. Our habits of mind are focused on a different dimension to the Holy Spirit. Our habits of mind fix upon what's going on in the world. It's, it's the habit of mind fixes on what's going on with him or her. It fixes on things that are going on around us and considers those things more powerful than us. Our Jerusalem is the dimension of the physical, the, 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 the natural mind that fixates upon the issues of this world. The political, the social, the cultural, the personal, the professional issues of this world. Those are the things we are afraid of. Those are the things that are in competition with us. Those are the things that we try to negotiate. In fact, we try to get God to help us in those things. But where we dwell, where we live is over there. 
Pentecost is saying, no, you don't live over there because over there is not the most important thing. No, I'm not telling you to be in a holy huddle and to isolate yourself from the world, but I'm telling you now, for now, you've got to have Jerusalem. You've got to be filled with the Holy Spirit because if you don't, go fi- fi- don't get filled with the Holy Spirit, you will not go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the utmost of the part- well, parts of the earth. Amen? If you go, you'll just be a tourist. Now, I suspect coming from a, th- a receiving nation of missionaries and mission trips, and mission, 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 what do you call these? Mission, intrepid mission um, projects. That many people from the West come to the East or whatever other place that there is, East, West, uh, North, South. But mainly they go as tourists. That includes short-term missions. And most of the time, speaking from someone who's not from the U.S., the, mission, the, 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 the receiving country accommodates and ministers to the people from the West who are coming to be, become missionaries. I remember I, I was, when I first came to America, I met this couple, and he was Japanese-American, and he was saying, I was a missionary in Japan. Oh, what do you mean? I went on a mission trip. That's what I was. No, you're not a missionary. You, uh, you went on a mission trip. And I looked at his life and I thought, how can you be a missionary? How can you be a missionary? What do you have to give? No, you went on a mission trip. Or you were a tourist. But you were not a missionary. I'm sorry. Now, there are others from the U.S. and from the West who have come to Malaysia and other places and they've done tremendous things. In fact, the charismatic movement in Malaysia was a fire was lit in, in, in Kuala Lumpur by these English, New, Ze- New Zealander, Australian, and, and American missionaries. They were wonderful. They were wonderful. So I'm not talking, I'm not, I'm, I'm not making a blanket statement. But they had experienced their Jerusalem. They had been empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we didn't care for their technology. We did not care for their, 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 their opinions about the world. We didn't care about their politics. We cared that they had the power of the Holy Spirit and we flocked to those people. And Malaysia was changed by this handful of American, English, Scottish, um, um, Australian missionaries who did not actually even call themselves missionaries. They came and they spoke and the charismatic movement swept to Malaysia, through Malaysia at a time when the communist threat was so strong they had come all the way to, 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 to the center of Kuala Lumpur and blown up our national monument. And Christians and politicians were saying, what shall we do? We have to deal with this problem systemically. And then the charismatic movement came. And everything turned around. We do not have a communist threat anymore. We do not have that anymore. We had kind of revival. It was so powerful, we don't even call it revival yet. But it was powerful. Amen? The most important thing, I guess the spiritual issue for all of us is how do I allow Jesus' words to come upon me, it's not for you to know, and replace that with something that is so much greater, so much more powerful, that I, am, I can appreciate it, I can feel it, I can feel the weight of it, I can feel the sense of it, I can feel the presentness of it, I can feel the immediacy of it, I can feel the press of it in me. I think that's what we need more. He said, wait in Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem is going to be fearful, but it will calibrate for you how filled you are with the Holy Spirit. 
based upon how much fear there is left. And as the Holy Spirit fills you more and more and more and more, the fear will go less, 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 and less, and less. But the fear is a calibrator. The fear is the, measure, is the means of measuring your, your Holy Spirit fill, filling. Does that make sense? And don't you find that God does put us in situations like that where we are strapped? We are worried for our children. We are worried for our daughter, our son. We are worried for, the, for our job. We are worried for our, 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 our bodies, our health. We are worried for our environment around us. We are worried for ourselves. And we can, we can measure the anxiety or the depression or whatever it is, the Jerusalem factor in our lives. And he says, you wait on me for the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit will come. And so what Jesus said to, the, to, to, to him was this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit is come upon you. And uh, it's a very interesting word, come upon. It has to do with two, two dimensions. One, the Holy Spirit is impending. Okay? And the second thing is the Holy Spirit comes almost as a, 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 a someone who, like a mountain lion that crouches and pounces on you. It's sudden and it's gradual. You have to let the Holy Spirit impend. Does that make sense? So that it's impending. He is impending. And so what Jesus is saying is this. You have to, you have to stay in Jerusalem and experience the impending. The, the rising. The, oh, he's close. Another way of translating is the Holy Spirit being close. Close by, nearby. You have to experience that. Not just he jumps upon you. If he jumps upon you, it's like it already happened. <laughs> it's too late. Can't do anything. Right? But if he impends upon you, what he's saying is that you can actually get closer. You can adjust yourself. You can allow your mind to be wrapped around him or enter into it and wait upon him. Does that make sense? If you don't have that, you don't have Jerusalem, you don't have uh, Ephesus, you don't have India. You have to have Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a place where he impends. And as he's impending, your fears are beginning to fade, begin to dissolve more and more, more and more. Pentecost is about focusing on Jerusalem, on that, and not upon the world and the kingdom of Israel and all the politics and, and all the social, cultural, uh, personal things that are going on. For a moment. For a moment. Amen? I had two classmates in, when I was in the University of Malaya. They were from East Malaysia, so they were aboriginal, aborigin, the aboriginal people. Uh, Mutang Tagal and Michael Sawing. Uh, not, sorry, uh, Michael Lisa. And we were all together in the Christian fellowship together. And uh, in the Christian fellowship, we, you know, there's a big fellowship and we're very into the, like, the theological, um, social, philosophical things that, that had to do with, you know, our faith in relation to the fact that, you know, as graduates, not that many people go, go to university in Malaysia. We would be leaders in the country, so we're all thinking about that. But Mutang Tagal, who was a law student, as well as Michael Lisa, who was a I don't know what he was studying, studying Bachelor of Arts in some humanities major. They were leaders in our, in our fellowship, and they were highly respected, but they were men of prayer. When we all talk about, you know, the corruption in our government, they were not interested in talking about it. They talked about prayer. They're constantly, prayer, 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 prayer. So... <laughs> And I could see some of our fellowship guys just rolling their eyes. Because they were, they were like grandmothers. They were grandmothers in our, and I was like, 
telling us to pray, 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 pray. Today, both of them are um, cabinet ministers. I would never have guessed. You! You didn't even know the first thing about politics. You are a cabinet minister, both of you? Yeah, because they're men of prayer, see? And God used them. They are some of the most uh, long-lasting politicians. And, 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 uh, and they were able to have solid substance enough to such an extent that no matter how many times their political enemies tried to probe into their affairs and all that, they were transparent. And they always came up clean. And there was one time when there was a, a, a crisis in East Malaysia and uh, uh, Mutang, he led the, the people of East Malaysia in a fast, uh, an intercession and prayer. And the situation turned around. It's the most important thing. It does not mean that other things are not important. The issues of knowledge of the kingdom of Israel and all that is not important. But I think what Jesus was saying is this. There's a sequencing that's brought. There's an order of things. And I think that's partly what it means that when Jesus says, gave them orders. There's an orderly manner in which God builds us up. Amen? It's hard for us to think of it as the most important thing because our minds jump to our problems, right? Jump to what happens if this happens and what will happen if this doesn't happen. And, and before long, our minds dwell in a different realm. We dwell in a different planet from God. And what God was saying in the day of Pentecost is, I want to invite you to my dimension because that will change the world. Now, I'm not speaking about this as an undergraduate person who says, oh, we're going to change the world. I understand. I understand that a lot of Americans like to use the word, we'll change the world. But I think that what, we're, what we are talking about here is something that is literally true. Not just metaphorical, metaphoric, metaphorically true. Let's go into this. And so, so verse 6, so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? And he said, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the most part of the earth. We spoke about the coming upon of the Holy Spirit as something that is impending. Yeah, it's an impending. In the impending uh, um, practicalities of it, I believe that there are ways in which we can actually allow the impending period, the period where the Holy Spirit has not fully grabbed hold of us, but who is already making His presence known. Yeah? We can actually practice the impendingness of the Holy Spirit. They practice the impending of the Holy Spirit. Where the Holy Spirit comes. The first thing I would uh, say is this. Our minds are, they're not that strong. They keep, they keep sliding off into distractions. Right? And they are constantly thinking about kingdom of Israel, social things, big picture things. We are fed by the newspapers. We are fed by the media and all these things. And we get concerned about these things. And that's very well. That very well so. But there's a way in which Pentecost talks about the fact that we should actually unhook ourselves. Unhook ourselves so that we don't dwell there. Don't let that be your spiritual life. It's not good food for you, spiritual life. It's important, but it's not your food. You don't dwell there. You look there. You ask God for what you're supposed to do there, but you don't live there. You enter in with what God is and wait upon the Lord. And, I, and, and, and the second thing that I want to say is this. Impending has to do with something that I, I pray that the, the, our church 
gets very good at or get very practiced at. To experience the, the way in which the Holy Spirit's taking hold of us starts with a little, very light, little, um, delicate little something in which He begins to nudge us a bit. He just seems to drop a little seed, a little thought inside our thought. And, uh, and he, he, he begins to, to, to give us a word about things. Or he begins to, um, to, 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 to drop a conviction in our heart about something that he's doing or something that he is. Yeah? And impending has to do with the fact that this actually can increase. It can intensify. It can become not something that you are taking hold of, but which is so powerful that it takes hold of you. That's why Paul talks about apprehending him and being apprehended by God. There's a way in which uh, Psalm 89 says, Blessed are the people who know the festal shout. The festal shout. Sometimes it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's translated the, the joyous shout. Sometimes it's translated in different, different, different ways. But the word is the teruach, which is the striking, the way in which the, the shout is a strike, like striking the peg in a tent. It's the same word that's used when the shout brought down Jericho. It's not just an audible shout. It's a shout in the heart. Have you found it? You're down, and somehow when you're praying, and you're praying in the Spirit, you feel encouraged. You feel a bit more free. The biggest mistake to such a privilege, such a precious thing, is to just say, okay, I'm good now. What God wants us to do is grow that. Because who you are, your stature beside, uh, in front of the devil is dependent upon how, how, how your shout is compared with the devil's voice. And most people are quite comfortable, quite happy to just have a, a little whimper. Oh, oh, still small voice. Oh, that's really good. <laughs> I'm happy. The Lord gave me a still small voice. How about letting it grow until it becomes like a powerful shout in, inside us. It becomes a teruah. Or another word that in Hebrew is the word taka. Taka. It's like it's onomatopoeia, right? It's like whack. Whack. That's why some people, they can pray against the devil and you can't feel the conviction. You can't feel the, whack, the weight of it. Just like talking. And then some people, when they pray against the devil, you can feel the devil move. They said that the devil come and the devil whole body come. Go. Body goes. The devil goes. You can feel it. Now, why, how, how does that actually happen? It comes through prayer, see? And when you're praying, you're praying counter all of Jerusalem's factors of anxiety and fear. Now, the fear and the anxiety and all that, the distraction, what it does is that it calibrates for you depending on how how it is reducing, how it is increasing, the level of prayer that has risen in you. Does that make sense? We all, as a church, need to get on that and not just pray prayers of our desire. All those are good. Jesus loves us as children. He loves the little children. But we are not supposed to live as little children all the, all, all the time. We have to get, into the point, get, get to the place where we experience impending. We experience Him impending upon us. Yeah? But for that to happen, we pray until that little bit of encouragement begins to grow. I have found when I was in depression that there will be some times when I'm praying, can't hardly get up. And then a little bit of a twing, a twinge or a twang of encouragement. He's going to take care of me. I found for my own sanity's sake, I have to grab hold of that. Grab hold of that. Pray into it. Pray into it. Pray in the Spirit. Worship Him in the Spirit. Focus, focus, focus. My mind will go off. Bring it back, bring it back. When you're in depression, you do it with a certain amount of desperation. Because you dare not let go. 
you dare not live without that little bit of encouragement. But I found that the more I pray, my spirit edif- gets edified. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and that encouragement gets bigger and bigger. It's not subjective. It's objective. It comes against my na- natural anxiety and my natural fear, my, my natural atten- tendency to depression. It comes against. It's objective. It objects to my depression. It's from the, from the ancient word, objectum, where it objects to my, to, my, uh, to my depression and it comes against it. It is a thing. It is not a feeling. It is a thing. It has body. It has mass. It has the power to grow. It's a living stone. Huh? And when that happens, when you are desperate, when you are f- living in paranoia, you need something like that or else you go cuckoo. Yeah? You need that and you grab a hold of it and you cling on to it and you pray it. And I learned in, 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 in 1 Corinthians that if I pray in the Spirit, I edify myself, that objective thing will grow. If it's subjective, it won't. It'll just, it'll, it'll just evaporate. If it is objective, it's a thing quite independent of me, then it will grow. I found that as a church, we are preparing ourselves for the days to come, but we must not just be children in prayer. We have to be people who are a dwelling place for God in which God finds when He comes, oh, there's familiarity there. We know how to grow in it. We know how to move in it. We know how to to march and strut in it without any kind of arrogance, but just a sense of assurance of God. The most important thing so as this group of people who, who were so fearful, their knees were knocking inside them, waited upon the Lord, upon the most important thing, they realized that the most important thing was going to come. And not only will they overcome the fears of Jerusalem, but they will go to Ephesus. They'll, they will meet the most sophisticated city in the, in the Roman world. Yeah? Cross the... Cross the cross Cross the, cross the seas, go to India. So John ended up in Ephesus, right? And many people believe that he was there with Mary, the mother of Jesus. And uh, Thomas ended up in India. There's plenty, plenty of historical uh, um, um, evidence for that. Amen. Praise God. The most important thing is so powerful, it'll get me out of my depression. It is so important, it'll get me out of my paranoia, my fear. It's so powerful. I, wait, I need to wait on Him. Amen? When I wait, I try to make it as un, unbroken as possible. Now, I understand. My mind is all over the place. My mind is not that strong. My mom called me uh, when, when I was a boy. She would call me scatterbrain. I just cannot fix on anything. I just I couldn't study for long. After a while, I just got um, antsy. And then when I went and I when I was touched by God, I started praying. And the same thing would happen. And I got and I got and I felt a bit more encouraged. I feel, whoo, that's great. No need to pray. I'm going. Let's get a peanut butter sandwich and go to the fridge. Every time I got inspired, I go to the fridge. <laughs> I remember one time. I was praying for my friend, and uh, he became a Christian in a meeting. I, said, I was so inspired. Instead of staying on, I said, let's go see a movie. Because I have this congenital scatterbrainedness. Okay, so we all have that to some extent. But the Lord, when He says, wait, Jerusalem, He's saying, you need to push back against the scattering of your mind. Because your mind will tend to go back to the kingdom of Israel and all that's going on. And all that's going on in the country and all that's going in there. John chapter 21, Jesus was speaking to Peter and Peter said, and he saw John. So Peter saw John coming and he says, what about this guy? Are you going to take him with you or, or will he be around when you when you come back again. And do you remember what Jesus said to him? Huh? 
If he stays, what is that to you? What is that to you? I have found Jesus saying that phrase a few times. What is that to you? In other words, none of your business. It seems to be his default mode sometimes. Remember when Mary in John chapter 2 came to him? They have no wine. What is that to you and me? Jesus like, focus, right? But he was still open if God was speaking through Mary and God wanted to do something or God was speaking to him about what to do with Mary. He was still that. But he had this mentality, what is that to me? We're not, he was not a busybody. He didn't get distracted by every need that came. What is that to you? The woman, who, the Syrophoenician woman comes to him with a, with a daughter who is actually a demon-possessed. And she, and she calls out to him. And Jesus stays on track with the agenda. It's not meat for us to give the, the, the bread to the, to, the, to the dogs. Their time has not come yet. What is that to you and me? You know, that kind of thing. Jesus is that. But he's that. So he has a preset idea. But he's under the rule of the Holy Spirit, who he is focused on, so that if the Holy Spirit says, move this way, he's willing to do that. Prejudice is not wrong. It's when you act upon the prejudice that you are sinning against God. Prejudice is a normal frame of mind that, that causes patterns to be formed. But the righteousness of God operates within us when we are in the Spirit and we obey the Spirit and something better than prejudice comes out. So there's a way in which Jesus pre-judged the situation. Under the power of the Holy Spirit, he was obedient to the Holy Spirit. Amen? He did not hold on to his preset idea. But it's important for us to see this, that Jesus had a way of being focused on the Father as a human being so that he was filled with the Holy Spirit wherever he went. Praise you, Jesus. Praise you, Lord. And so what John says is this. Jesus said, if he comes, when I, if he stays till I come, um, what is that to you? And I feel that there's a way in which a pattern of mine, a habit of mine, is being dug out by God here when he says, wait until the Holy Spirit is coming. This is the most important thing. And it's amazing how when He comes, He will take us to all those places. All those places that before our mind was distracted by. Isn't that amazing? Okay. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the, of the earth. So I've spoken about the impending. There's another meaning for that come upon you, which has to do with a sudden grabbing hold. Yeah? A sudden grabbing hold in which the Holy Spirit has control over you. It's more than just we sensing the Holy Spirit. It's possible for us to sense the Holy Spirit and still disobey Him. But here he's talking about something else. He's talking about the Holy Spirit will come upon you. One way of translating that phrase is like a predator that has jumped upon you. Yeah. And so there's a way in which, like Cindy was speaking, there's a priority of us waiting upon the Lord, speaking upon the speaking. Yeah, allowing the Holy Spirit to, 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 to hold us there. And I, and I like that. Just hold us there. I want to wait upon the Lord until I'm come upon. 
not just impending, but I want, I'm come upon. And when I'm come upon, I become a different person. I won't become so defer, def deferential. I won't be so nice. I hope I'd still be kind and loving. Of course I will. But when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, we will not have such a strong vision of humankind more than the vision of God. And when that happens, we will have more to offer humankind. But there's a way in which we are compelled. Compelled by the Spirit. We saw in last week that Jesus was compelled by the Spirit. Rushed by, almost the good translations, rushed into the... It's compelled. Have you seen people who are really powerfully used by God? They don't move like we move. They move in a compelled way. There's a certain boldness about them. But their boldness doesn't come because they have that personality type. They actually have, they function from a, a, a source that is more than just them, their egos pitted against your ego. They, they, they are compelled by something besides themselves. They love people, but they love God to such an extent, in such a way that it overshadows their love for people. And sometimes you cannot take them too personally. Because if they argue with you, it's not because they don't like you. They're just being compelled by something else. It used to be difficult for me to live with such people because I used to be very, very much a people, people person. And my pastor used to tell me, Michael, you know, you are good. You're a pastor. And when he, when he said to me, you're a pastor, I know what he meant. He was kind of a prophet. And he was saying, you're a pastor. Yeah, I know, I know what you're laughing at. He was saying, you're a nice guy. Because you live with respect to people. You don't live with respect to God. But when you live with respect to God, you love people more than, than your, past, your, your, your personality type. But you'd be compelled by God. Amen? There's something of a boldness that comes, not because they are just brash or they are just extrovert, but because something not of themselves has taken hold of them. Now, the reason why I believe signs and wonders takes place with certain people is because they can get out of themselves. They can get out of their, their little equation between you and their, them and the other person in which feelings are the, are the most important thing. They can get out of that. They can get out of that. And then be moved by God quickly, suddenly. Shame is not an issue for them. They don't bother about what people think. Don't go up. They, they're not worried that they will fall flat on their face because they come out of themselves. They've died to themselves. Amen? They're not there because that's this great boldness thing because of something else. Amen? Last point. God wants us to, to be people who wait upon Him rather than just want knowledge. I have found that helping people in their devotions, sometimes that part is not understood because they want to know what the Lord has to say. They want to know the Word of the Lord. And so, instead of drawing close to them, they're just wanting to know what God has to say to them today. They want the knowledge of that. And I want to put it to you that actually, sometimes in our anxiety or in our own insecurity, we want to be, we want our insecurity in terms of, oh, what is God thinking of me? Is he okay with me or not? Uh, does he love me still? I know he said he loved me last, last night, but today things may have changed, you know. I need a word from the Lord. And yeah, there's that. There is that. And what I want to put it to you, what put to you is, is that actually sometimes when we are waiting for a word of the Lord, we want to just know whether we're okay or not. We want to know whether we're okay or not. Or we want to know what the Lord has for us in the future. Yeah, a lot of people do their devotion because they just want to know what the Lord has to say to, in the future. They want the knowledge of it. That's not bad. But there's a priority that is more important, and that is the Lord wants to draw us close to Him. The Lord wants to embrace us. 
He wants us to be unreserved in our love for Him. He wants to touch us in our heart, in our spirit, before the knowledge even comes. So when Jesus says, it's not for you to know, He's saying there's a priority of presence over knowledge. There's a priority of closeness to God over even getting a word from God. And sometimes when you don't have that closeness to God, we're not waiting for the Holy Spirit to just increase his, the measure of His presence in you, what will happen is that you will quickly go to knowledge. Are you going to restore king, kingdom of Israel? Are you, do you have a word for me now? Lord, do you have that for me? I want to put it to you, for those of you who have sometimes difficulty in having, doing your devotions, don't worry about getting a word from God first because He has a word for you. He has a word for you. Don't worry. But He loves you more than He loves to tell you things. There are things it's not time for you to know yet. It will come. It doesn't mean that you will never know. It's just not the time for you to know yet. Because if you know knowledge without the lens of God's love and God's presence with you, you will misconstrue that knowledge anyway. It will kill you. And so, for those of you who want to apply this word in your devotions, you can do that. Just when spend time with the Lord. During the time, when, and I have experienced a lot of anxiety, especially the kind of anxiety that is before a result, okay, before a result, before an outcome is about to take place, and I don't know what's going to happen, results from an exam, results from a test or whatever, and before that actually happens, I have found that in my quiet time, my devotions, the priority is to relate to God personally. Bring my heart towards Him. Talk to Him. Praise Him. Not this idea of spirituality. Don't praise the idea of spirituality. Don't pray up so that you can be more prayed up. No, it is God with whom we are loving. It's God who loves us. His primary thing for us is His love for us, not how powerful we can be or how sensitive to the Spirit we can be and all those good things. He is here to overcome our prejudice because our minds have lots of prejudices. Some legitimate, some not legitimate. Many of them not legitimate. And our prejudices make us separated from God and from God's truth because we look at things through our prejudices, right? Our pre pre preset ideas. And what God has to do is to come and melt all that. You, a lot of times he can do that by giving us a word but more often than not he wants to draw us close and when that happens when you receive a word you'll never be condemning never be fearful never be kind of spurious it'll always be something that is spoken and you can hear the voice of God the loving voice of God see so because of that I find that during, during, during these times in which life was difficult, I would go down, downstairs and I would wait upon God, put my Bible aside, and just pray to Him and bring my heart towards Him. And at some point, at some point, if I'm waiting, willing to wait for it, and I know it's worth it now, there will be a, may I use the word feeling, a feeling that will drop in my heart. It will come from God. It'll, it'll be a feeling that I did not generate for myself, but there's this whole mindset, a certain kind of different kind of way of feeling and thinking that just drops upon me. And for some reason, I feel, yeah, God loves me. He's saying, it's going to be okay. Before I even receive a word, I have found that before I receive a word, it's good for me to be, to be in that zone for a while. When that happens, the word will come and I will interpret it right. Amen? Let us pray. Let's, 
Let's wait upon him for just a few moments. Actually, the time of soaking is a time in which we engage with God and let him sweep past our distraction, our congenital and habitual um, tendency to just jump all over the place, our tendency to fix on things that seem to be more physically immediate than the presence of God. We behold him. We behold him. Just fix your eyes upon him. You may not see anything, but just keep just keep them in that direction. Even as you do that, Romans chapter 8 says, we are in the Spirit. When we wait for him to fill it up, he is impending. Bless your name. Even as we wait before the Lord, the Lord is pouring forth His Spirit upon us at our call, at our cry. The Holy Spirit is infinitely God. And so because of that, when He comes, at first we will not feel Him because He's not confined to our feelings. We can't see Him because He's not confined to what we see. We cannot imagine him because he's not confined to our imagination. But by faith, we can set our heart towards him and behold him. And even though we don't detect or see anything, by faith we say, Lord, I'm receiving you. I'm welcoming you. I set my mind and I devote my mind to you. Walking us through, Lord Jesus, from Jerusalem, Lord God, all the way, Lord Jesus, into Samaria, Lord Jesus, all the way to the ends of the earth, wherever you are calling us to, to see restoration that you are bringing through your witnesses, through your children, through your growing ones right now. And so, Lord, we want to say yes to you, even as we know this word, God, has you in it. This word has you in it. God, this word is not just changing our mind. We welcome you right now to renew our mind. Yes, Lord. But especially, God, we ask you to grab a hold of our hearts and our spirits. And, Lord Jesus, just let us run with you. Let us run with you, Lord God, to this new garden that you have that's better than the other garden that you have given us more Amen. than just Amen. conquering sin. You give us yourself and you give us life. So we say, yes, God, make us these people that run with you in right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless your name, Lord. We welcome you. Come and fill us. Holy Spirit, Lord. We are so tempted to think that we need this and that need that and that is the issue and that, or that other thing is the issue. We say you are what we need. You are what we want. And our desire is for you. So we welcome you. We welcome you to come into every place that feels shaky, unsure, that feels hard, that feels jaded, that feels burnt out, that feels dead. We welcome you, Lord. We welcome you day after day, day after day, 
to come and do the work, Lord, that only you can do to soften our hearts and to make them come alive again. So we welcome you. Keep us in our presence this week. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.